I think we should get started. Um, before I introduce our speaker today, just a couple of quick announcements. Um, Steve Leach wanted me to let everybody know that next week we have Mike Berry from the Mayo Clinic discussing viral approaches to cancer therapy. And then importantly, from Steve's perspective, next the week after that, so the last um, grand rounds before our summer break, Steve is going to be presenting a State of the Cancer Center. So I um, just wanted to get that on everybody's radar screen, um, and it'll be the last um, Tuesday afternoon Grand Rounds before our summer break. So I want to welcome everybody to um, North Cotton Cancer Center Grand Rounds, um, both to everybody um, here in this room and to those who are joining us remotely. Um, the conflict of interest statement that I always forget to read, but I'm going to read distinctly right now, is that um, Dr. Roshkold does not have any financial interest. She does not... Um, she does intend to discuss off-label or investigational uses of a product or device, but she is not receiving direct payments from a commercial entity with respect to this activity. So it's my pleasure to introduce Paula Rushkulb to all of you. I think um, most of you probably know that she is the medical director of our neuro-oncology program. She is an assistant professor of medicine and neurology at the Geisel School of Medicine. Um, she actually um, trained here for residency before going to Memorial Sloan Kettering to do her um, fellowship in neuro-oncology. Um, but before being recruited back here, she had some stints um, at Intermountain and then at Southern Illinois University. But we're so glad she's come back to um, what we hope she considers her home, at least for training. And um, I love the title of this talk, so I have to say, Leptomeningeal Carcinomatosis, the Artful Dodger of Metastatic Disease. So please welcome Dr. Roshkold. Thank you. I just okay, I just got it on there. <laughs> All right. Good tip. Okay. Is it on? Yep. Oh now it is. Okay. All right. Leptomeningeal carcinomatosis. Let's see, how am I gonna get this to advance? Oh, there we go. Okay. So just by definition, as everybody likely knows, uh, it is when we have multifocal seeding through the CSF of cancer cells. And I point out that there are several synonyms. These are all exactly the same thing, and we just use different terminology to make sure that nobody's really clear about anything at any given point. Um, I will use the term leptomeningeal metastasis. It's the most common in the literature. Generally speaking, this is considered uncommon, and it is relative to other um, disease processes, but the incidence seems to be increasing, and that's likely due to the fact that our patients are surviving longer, the fact that we're a little better at finding it, uh, and then, of course, the fact that many of these new drugs that we're using to improve survival don't have good blood-brain barrier penetration. That allows for this nice safe harbor for tumor cells to grow. I didn't touch anything. <laughs> there it is. Okay. Um, 
Where was I? Okay, so up to 10% of patients will be ultimately diagnosed. The numbers really throughout this whole presentation, there's a lot of variability because we really don't have any large-scale studies. So I did the best I could to come up with representative numbers, but you find if you look through the literature, there are a lot of different statistics, and you kind of have to take them all and get an overall perspective. But the point here is that about 20% of patients, if you think 10% are diagnosed while they're alive, about 20% will be found at autopsy to have leptin meningeal metastasis, and most of those, the majority of them, will have coexisting CNS mets, so they do often go hand in hand. With the exception of liquid tumors, these, it's usually a late-stage process. I'm going to focus today on solid tumors simply because liquid tumors have a different kind of approach, outcome, and again, that can be found right up front in that setting. And this is kind of a broad overview of different aspects of leptomeningeal disease, kind of what it is, how we find it, how we treat it, where things stand. Uh, so no particular area is going to have the strongest emphasis, but hopefully it'll give you a little bit of perspective on things. So for those <clears throat> who do not spend all their time looking at neuroanatomy, um, we have the point that I want to make here is kind of where it is. Let's see if this works. Okay, so we have the bone, we have the dura, that nice thick rough layer. And then underneath it right there, the A, that's the arachnoid. Down here is the pia. So in between, that's our subarachnoid space. That's where the cells are circulating. So you have this empty area in here along with a lot of vessels and things. So that's where the tumor cells are. And then, of course, we know that that circulates around the brain all the way down the spinal cord. There are several different ways that we think that it gets to the brain, to the leptomeninges, the most common of which are hematogenous spread. Um, by, if you look down here, those arachnoid vessels right in the CSF or right in the subarachnoid space. So it can come through those vessels. And then you can get direct spread from CNS metastases. That can either be from the parenchyma, the pia down there, or the dura up top. And then there are a number of other ways it can get there. Retrograde invasion uh, along nerves, cranial nerves in particular. You can get direct spread from other things like epidural metastases or vertebral metastases. And so this is kind of, that was kind of the um, mechanical aspect of how it gets there, kind of that physical piece. When we think a little bit more about what causes it to happen, that's what we don't understand very well yet. But this was a pretty interesting paper that came out recently. Adrian Barre over at MSK, they did a study where they were able to determine that C3 is upregulated in their leptomeningeal metastatic models. And interestingly, that it correlated, the level correlated with the clinical course and also was predictive of leptomeningeal um, recurrence. So there's definitely, it appears to be a correlation there. The question is, what do we do with that? And in their preclinical models, they were able to show that pharmacological blocking of this process um, seemed to have a beneficial effect. So that's kind of the, the limit of where we're at in terms of understanding, but the hope that maybe we can get a little bit further. So moving along to characteristics, two different types. We have the diffuse uh, cells floating in the fluid that are not adherent, and then we have the type that's adherent to the meninges. That's what we can typically see on MRI scan, whereas the ones that are floating in the fluid are the ones that we can detect with CSF analysis. The most common sites 
base of the brain, sylvian fissures, and cauda equina. And we think that this is because of both slow flow and then gravity. And if you look, I mean, at the picture there, along the top of the brain, you have this, so the light blue is the CSF space. That's a smaller picture. The, along the top of the brain, along the um, surface there, it really kind of seems to flow freely, but there are a lot of nooks and crannies down at the bottom, down where the cerebellum is and along the brain stem. And then, of course, in the cotoquina, there's the gravity effect. We know that the top three associated primaries are breast, lung, and melanoma, but it can be found leptomeningeal disease has been reported in almost every tumor type, including things like unknown primary, where sometimes that's the only thing we see is leptomeningeal disease. But regardless of, as I said, there are many different uh, references in the literature that vary, but one thing that's consistent is that breast, lung, and melanoma are at the top. So those are the malignancies that require that higher index of suspicion. Clinical findings, it's typically subacute, days to weeks. Um, multifocal involvement is the hallmark, and it makes sense because those, CS, those cells are you know, disseminated throughout the CSF. Um, the problem with that is it can lead to a really nonspecific picture. So somebody comes in with all of these symptoms that seem to be completely unrelated because you have this multifocal seating. And then sometimes it's multifocal, but it's not obvious that it is. A patient comes in and says they have double vision. It's very obvious to them they have double vision. You can test that. What they may not realize, and they probably wouldn't realize, is they've dropped their patellar reflex. It's not an obvious sign, but that tells you that we've got cranial nerve involvement and also the spinal nerves. Signs of elevated intracranial pressure are common. And this can be either from true obstruction, so you can have nodular disease that's kind of obstructing that pathway that I showed in terms of delivering CSF throughout the axis. But it can also be kind of a clogging, so to speak, of the arachnoid granulations. So these little so this blue area is actually a venous sinus. Okay, so that's blood flow, that's drainage, blood drainage from the brain. And these little kind of spiderweb red areas here, that's the subarachnoid space where the tumor cells are. And then they have these little outpouchings that go into that venous sinus, and that's where CSF goes out into the bloodstream so that it can be um, removed because we're always replacing our CSF. So if you get tumor cells or even just an inflammatory process as a result of leptomeningeal disease in this region, they can't drain properly so you can get this communicating hydrocephalus. And so patients will present with headache often. Um, they can have nausea and vomiting, somnolence, patients who are sleeping more often, the, patient, the family will say she's taking more naps throughout the day, this sort of thing. And one thing along those lines that I want to point out, because it's not well recognized, and it's worth at least having in the back of the mind, is that patients who have this chronically elevated intracranial pressure can have periods where that pressure kind of bumps up for a period of time. And this down here, which would be from a patient who had to happen to have a monitor in there monitoring their pressure, we call them plateau waves because they look just like that. They kind of, you have this kind of long period where they're flat, and then you'll come up and have this plateau that can last a few minutes usually, um, probably 5 to 20 minutes, something like that. And patients will say, in many cases, I just feel kind of this out-of-body strange experience. I'm just not there. I'm kind of zoned out. Uh, the hearing sounds funny. Or they'll say, I get dizzy and lightheaded. I feel like I'm going to pass out. Sometimes they get a headache with it. And then it goes away, and they feel back to normal again. It's often triggered with a um, position change. Sit to stand is not an uncommon uh, complaint. But it's worth knowing about because it can be confused with seizure. 
And anticonvulsants are not going to treat this because it's not a seizure. And the other thing is it's typically steroid responsive. So in terms of treating symptoms, uh, if you give somebody steroids, oftentimes within a day or so, they'll start to feel better. And that's kind of semi-diagnostic, too. If we haven't done anything else but given the steroids, that kind of tells you maybe that is what's going on. So again, in terms of clinical findings, if we're talking about the brain itself, the cerebrum, the cerebellum, you get headache, nausea, vomiting, encephalopathy, and cerebellar symptoms. Those are the most common. These patients can also have seizures. They can be panhypopit or have DI if the pituitary stock is involved. That's more common in liquid tumors. Headaches the most common. They can get meningeal irritation. They get meningeal signs. Encephalopathy is also common. The problem with that is it's very nonspecific. So if all a patient has is some confusion, that may not be sufficient to diagnose. It's not common for that to happen in isolation. Nausea vomiting I mentioned, particularly vomiting in the absence of nausea. So any patient who says, I didn't feel sick at all, and all of a sudden I vomit, needs to probably have their heads, well, they certainly need to have their heads scanned. Um, seizures, if you think about it, that leptomeningeal disease is right along the cortical surface, so it certainly has the um, ability to irritate the cortex and cause seizures. Only about 25% of patients. Vision changes, if it involves the cranial nerves, vision changes are the most common, especially double vision. And facial weakness is another very common one. And when it happens from leptomeningeal disease, it's a peripheral pattern, kind of like a Bell's palsy, because Bell's palsy is also a peripheral nerve, okay? So, that peripheral facial nerve is involved. You get the eye and the lower face that are sagging, not just the lower face. They can also have numbness, paresthesias, or pain along those distributions of the cranial nerve, hearing loss, tinnitus. And if it's lower down in the spinal cord, they can have dysarthria or dysphagia, so they have difficulty swallowing, they have uh, slurred speech, and they can get hoarseness. And I mention this because it comes up when I talk about this sometimes in um, student and trainee lectures, the numb chin syndrome. So it's a recognized sign. And when somebody has a numb chin, that should always kind of draw people's attention. It can occur with leptomeningeal disease. Uh, it definitely has been reported, but it's more commonly associated with bony mets in the mandible. And so there are reports in the literature of dentists in particular discovering that people have metastatic disease because they come with this numb chin syndrome. And then finally, if it's in the spinal cord, limb weakness, most commonly lower extremities. Leg weakness we hear a little bit more. You can get a dermatomal paresthesia or sensory loss, so loss of sensation that, or even weakness, really, but loss of sensation that follows a particular dermatome. Patients can have fa uh, pain, which can be either localized to the back or neck, or it can be radicular. If it's involving the spinal nerves, it can be just like having sciatica and kind of go down the back of the leg. They may have neck rigidity, bowel or bladder dysfunction, or they may, and they, if they're going to have a change in reflexes, it's usually dropping those reflexes, hyporeflexia. And then another kind of comment along those lines about things that we see, if people have numbness or, or anything really going on in the thoracic region, it's often described as band-like. And so I've had patients tell me, um, women, well, almost always women, uh, that it feels like they're wearing a bra when they're not wearing a bra, and it's this tightness around the thoracic region. We have a long differential diagnosis we have to consider when patients come in with these symptoms. And then we start looking at, if we're suspicious, how do we diagnose it? There's two main things. It's imaging and CSF analysis. So when we look at the CSF, I, always, I say it's helpful when it's helpful and it's not when it's not. Because if it is positive, that is useful. If it is negative, that doesn't really rule it out. Because there's only about a 50% yield on one tap. 
But there are other findings in the CSF that are suggestive. So even if we can't see the cells having elevated protein, if it's really high, you can think that they may have loculation somewhere down in the lower spinal cord. So something is protruding and causing that CSF to sit there and pool and get thick. Uh, high lymphocytes. Atypical cells in lymphoma are very suspicious. Decreased glucose, in which case we have to think about things like meningitis. Elevated opening pressure is not uncommon. And xanthochromia and melanoma can be found. And even if there's a high protein level, you can get what looks like xanthochromia, yellow fluid. So it's uncommon to have an entirely normal CSF profile. Um, it can happen, but that's less common. And so even if we don't see cells, we tend to see something off in the most common or high protein or lymphocytic pleocytosis, high lymphocyte count. So if we want to make sure that we can have the highest likelihood of getting a diagnosis from CSF, and I, I do tend to harp on this a little bit because it's not like drawing blood. This is no fun for the patients to go through a lumbar puncture, so we should really try to optimize it. And so we really want to try to get 10 cc's just for the cytological analysis. So sending these four tubes with a little bit in each tube, which we do sometimes for other purposes, really isn't ideal. So 10 cc's, and it has to go right to the lab and get processed as quickly as possible. And that increases our likelihood of a useful um, tap. Uh, and then from the closest site, so if somebody happens to have an OMIA, they already have this um, uh, reservoir in the ventricle, but on the MRI scan we see something in the lower spine might have a higher yield doing a lumbar puncture even though we can get fluid up here than you would. So the closest site tends to increase the yield as well. Um, in some patients, no matter how obvious it is clinically, and it can be very obvious on the MRI scan, we may still always have a negative tap if those cells are very adherent, if they're not free-floating. And then the only time that flow cytometry seems to be is particularly useful is in the setting of liquid tumors, which we're not really discussing today. These are some newer things that people are thinking about doing. They're not well established. They're not part of guidelines yet, but they're not, it's not uncommonly done. So we can start looking at some of these tumor markers, and that can be particularly helpful in equivocal, case, in equivocal cases. So if you have a level that is higher in the CSF than it is in the serum of one of these tumor markers that's associated with the type of cancer, that could be suggestive and help turn, you know, help lead toward the diagnosis. The only place where it's really established that we check these in the CSF is with germ cell tumors. And then there are some novel techniques that people are looking at now that are not routinely or widely available yet, um, and they're not validated, so we can't say that they replace our current methods. But uh, they're looking at staining neoplastic cells, so you have to kind of find the cells first. But if you can find the cells and stain them, we can look for some of the markers, including they're looking at things like HER2 and BRAF. And then cell-free DNA is being used to identify tumor-specific somatic uh, alterations using next generation sequencing. And then this one is particularly out there, and I doubt that anybody other than the person who put this in the literature is doing it, um, but this is tumor-specific antibody-covered magnetic nanoparticles to identify circulating tumor cells. So this is at least uh, an effort to kind of move forward and doing a better job of identifying. The other thing that's interesting about this is just like we see with metastases versus the primary tumor, sometimes there's a difference at the molecular level between those two. And it's it would be curious to find out if the same thing is true with leptomeningeal disease. Are there differences in, in mutations? So this is an example uh, where this came, I, I don't know where the primary study was done, but Jason Hughes is over at MSK. And so they were looking at circulating tumor DNA, and they were able to look at melanoma-associated mutations using something called droplet digital PCR.
And by doing that, uh, when, let's see here, 30% of CSF samples that were negative using our standard technique of trying to identify them under the microscope were positive using this method. So in this study, it was far more um, sensitive, um, but again, not widely available yet, but promising. The other way we diagnose is with imaging. We will always want to try to get a contrast-enhanced MRI. Very few, uh, there's really nothing else that replaces it. For patients who can't get an MRI, I've occasionally been able to see something on CT scan that was suggestive, but it's, a very, it's a far uh, inferior. And PET scan is rarely useful because we have such a, the resolution just isn't there for this linear, mm -hmm. tiny nodular disease. Sometimes a non-contrast study will be, uh, will show changes um, that are evident of high protein. So sometimes we can see things on other, but typically we want that contrast-enhanced MRI. And the sensitivity and specificity is actually pretty high just using imaging. So really at this point, if you have the right clinical context and the MRI scan is suggestive, you really don't have to do CSF analysis for every patient. You can kind of base it on that particular patient scenario. If you do find it one place in the brain, you scan the brain because of brain symptoms, you really have to look at the whole axis in order to determine extent of disease. And we always try to do the MRI. If we are going to do a lumbar puncture, we try to do the MRI first because you can get these false findings after when, when the pressure goes down. I'm going to show you some pictures of the findings. I won't talk about it too much here. And we've already talked about some of the common locations. Sometimes we see ventriculomegaly, so the ventricles can be large because of the obstruction. But patients who are older and patients who've had whole brain radiation can already have big ventricles, so that's not very specific. When the patient's on Avastin, that can hide leptomeningeal disease, so that's something to keep in mind. Um, and then sometimes it's mistaken for vasculitis. So these are some examples. This one is a pretty diffuse uh, example. All of these sulci are are um, affected. So it's not common that we see so many that we see something this diffuse and this obvious. But sometimes it's good to look at obvious examples in order to kind of think about it when you see something later. <coughs> this is a coronal view. We can see it down in the cerebellum a little bit, but this would be an example of leptomeningeal disease. It's in the sulci. Okay, so if you think about it, you have the, the surface of the brain, and that's where the subarachnoid fluid is, but all of those little involutions are also cortical surface. This is an example that shows both the midline of the cerebellum here, but mainly you can see this whole brainstem here is kind of coated. We shouldn't see this white line all the way around the brainstem. It's another example of kind of different views of the cerebellum, so this is very significant leptomeningeal disease here. And from this, uh, this is looking axially. If we look coronally, this is kind of what it looks like coming down into those little folia. So the cerebellum has these folia that, and uh, the uh, cells tend to like to just kind of settle into those folia. So it's often most obvious in the cerebellum. This is in both places here. We kind of have these sulci up here and also the cerebellum. This is a patient, um, he actually has a germ cell tumor. And so you can see here, this is along the ependymal surface. So obviously this is full of CSF. So we have kind of a linear portion here, and then we have a nodular portion. This patient uh, has breast cancer. And she has, you can see it around, this is the same patient. So here you can see it around the brainstem, like I showed on that example photo. This is one of my patients. And then this down here, you can see it layering in the cerebellum. This over here, 
These are, this is the cranial nerve 7-8 complex. This is one of the places you want to think about this. The, the cranial nerves are just kind of free floating in, this, in that subarachnoid fluid. They've left the brain and they're floating in the fluid. So it's a really easy place for those cells to kind of glom on and light up. But this is not, it's not uncommon for this to be missed on an MRI. But you really shouldn't be able to see these much at all. You have to squint to kind of see those cranial nerves under normal circumstances. So for them to be bright like that is very suggestive of leptomeningeal disease. And this in particular I want to point out because I see this not uncommonly um, identified as um, uh, parenchymal, meta parenchymal metastases, regular brain metastases. They'll say multiple small brain metastases. But these are not regular brain metastases. These are areas of <laughs> leptomeningeal disease that has grown into a nodule. So if everything that you see, if you see a bunch of these tiny things and they all seem to be like here right along the cortical surface or here if you notice there's a sulcus, and then it's kind of down at the base of that sulcus. If they all tend to be either on the surface or kind of right inside a sulcus like that, it's probably leptomeningeal disease that has formed into nodules. It's an example of the spine. You can see the base of the brain here. So along the cerebellum, we see it. And then also this white coating along the spinal cord here. So. This person has a spine, has spinal disease too, but it's kind of linear and nodular. And then this one is further down the spine where you can see that the cauda equina, all of these white linear things are kind of part of the cauda equina, and then you can see it along the spinal cord as well. So the prognosis, once a patient has been diagnosed, the prognosis is generally poor and it has not changed much. Um, untreated within weeks, we give people a very short um, survival time if we're not doing anything at all to treat. Even when we do treat, the average, if you look at it in total, is only about two to four months of survival time. So it's a very, this is another reason why it's so um, imperative that we kind of make some progress in trying to determine how to treat. Again, I mentioned early on that there are a lot of different areas where we glean statistics, but none of them are large studies. So the numbers vary, but these are, are pretty accurate that at one year you have a pretty small percentage of patients who are still alive after treatment. These are some of the statistics from a, a couple of different publications. This one was out of Duke. Um, you see here how wide this is. Prevalence, 30 to 75%. That's a pretty wide range there. And 75 sounds rather high to me. Um, the others, this is non-Hodgkin lymphomas, lung cancer, breast cancer. Um, I think that in some, in many cases, the number's a bit higher than this. But in any, if you look at the, in any of these situations, the median survival is, is pretty low. In this study, they looked at 318 patients. That was a pretty good uh, cohort of patients. And there were two things that were kind of interesting about it. One, of course, they looked at survival, and this was based on the subtype of breast cancer. So based on the HER2 status and hormone receptor status. And so you can see that HER2 patients did, lived twice as long. And I just kind of color-coded these with the lines up here because it's difficult. They're so close, it's difficult to kind of separate them out. Um, so triple negative, two and a half months, HER2 positive, 5.2 months. So twice as long, but still not a satisfactory survival time frame. The other thing that was notable in here is that they were able to look at a fairly large selection and determine what the distribution is. And we had some sense for this in the past, but it came from smaller numbers. And so here, HER2 pot, or I'm sorry, hormone receptor positive, HER2 negative was, had the highest number, triple negative had the next highest number. And this uh, 
is kind of an interesting example of what I was mentioning. So with EGFR mutated non-small cell lung cancer, median overall survival in this study was 3.1. And you note here they say, to the best of our knowledge, this describes the largest group of patients with leptomeningeal disease, EGFR positive patients with lepto, and it's only 32. So again, small, small groups. But then they acknowledge that although there's 3.1 months, 43% uh, are alive at six months and 18% at a year. So there's something different about these patients and what is it that's different in those that survive longer is important to flesh out. And this is the same study. They talk about some of the challenges, small sample size, retrospective design. Um, they didn't detect a difference in whether patients were radiated or not, but then there, there's the acknowledgement, which is true, that we tend to choose which patients are going to get aggressive treatment based on how badly they're doing. So there is not this kind of randomized approach. If a patient's doing very poorly, then we sometimes kind of, uh, it's appropriately, send them off more on a hospice path, and those who have a better functional status um, end up getting radiation and other treatments. Um, and then the fact that none of them got intrathecal chemotherapy, which we'll talk about in a moment, makes it difficult to determine whether that's effective. And again, performance status at time of diagnosis had a better prognosis, high performance status had a better prognosis. Well, that's just kind of generally true. So it's very hard to glean from this anything that tells us more than what we might have already surmised. What does kind of constitute a poor prognosis? A poor performance status, so a KPS, a Kardoski performance score of 60 or less, multiple or severe neurodeficits, extensive systemic disease, limited options for treatment of that systemic disease, bulky CNS disease, and encephalopathy are poor factors. So in this case, our goal is symptomatic relief. They may or may not get palliative radiotherapy. Steroid therapy is common. That does tend to help with symptoms. Might get a ventric, uh, VP shunt, ventriculoperitoneal shunt. Um, there are reasons to think differently about that depending on the case. And we treat their pain and we treat them if they have seizures. The patients with a good prognosis have a KPS of 70 or greater. They have minimal neurodeficits. They don't have impaired CSF flow, which comes into play later on as well. They tend to have lower protein levels at diagnosis, which kind of correlates with burden. Um, and then the last kind of all go together, minimal systemic disease burden, chemosensitivity, options available for treatment, and actively being treated for their primary disease. So in this case, you may be looking to try to prolong survival, even though it's not common to, to uh, prolong it for, for very long. Um, so we treat with radi radiotherapy to bulky or symptomatic areas. So that's for the purpose of pain relief. It can also kind of stabilize neurological symptoms. Somebody's getting to where they can't walk anymore because their legs are weak. It might allow them to stay a little bit more ambulatory, a little bit longer. It doesn't often reverse things. Um, and to restore CSF flow. Um, we also look at treatment with a systemic versus an intrathecal agent, and there are reasons to think about those differently depending on the circumstances. We'll talk about that in a moment. And then treatment of the primary tumor and other palliative strategies. We're still going to treat their pain as we would with somebody with a poor prognosis. We don't typically do craniospinal irradiation, and that's kind of a challenge because really if we're trying to treat leptomeningeal disease, you have to treat the whole craniospinal axis, it's everywhere. So treat, doing whole brain radiation is going to do nothing about those tumor cells circulating in other areas. But it's just the toxicity is too high, typically, in these patient populations. The myelosuppression can be significant. And if we are going to try to give them chemo, we might stop them from being able to get any chemo if we suppress them too much. And in some cases, it's just not tolerable. That is a tough regimen to get through under any circumstance. We treat elevated intracranial pressure, typically with steroids. 
BP shunt can be considered, but we have to worry, we have to think about things like shifting too far the other direction, seeding tumor cells into the abdomen. Whether or not that makes a difference is not well established, but it's still something to consider. And if you're thinking about giving intrathecal chemotherapy, it has to be one that has an on-off valve where you're delivering chemotherapy right into the peritoneum. So we target, as I said, symptomatic sites, bulky sites, and sites of obstruction. The regimens vary based on what the patient will tolerate and what their prognosis is. So for cranial neuropathy, we sometimes just do the skull base and the first couple vertebra, the cisterns along the base of the brain. If they have a cauda equina syndrome, we'll probably just do the lower lumbosacral levels. It's not uncommon to do whole brain radiation. That's to kind of treat that communicating hydrocephalus and some of the symptoms patients have. So intrathecal chemotherapy, it bypasses the blood-brain barrier, minimizes systemic side effects. It's generally considered ineffective, though, if patients have bulky disease. This is a big challenge because penetration is limited beyond, say, one to three millimeters. So if a patient has diffuse bulky disease and we inject into the CSF, we're not going to effectively treat those bulky lesions. So that, that's a common kind of challenge in the setting of diagnosis. Um, Effectiveness is not well established either way, so we don't know uh, whether it's beneficial, essentially, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment as well. So intraventricular versus intralumbar, you can do either one. So doing intraventricular, you don't have to do multiple lumbar punctures. That's particularly helpful, not just because it's uncomfortable, but if a patient is anticoagulated. Um, we can avoid accidentally putting it in the epidural or subdural space. When we do an LP, that's kind of a blind procedure. It's done under fluoro in many cases, but in many cases it's not. Even so, it's a little bit more, it's a little safer to know that you're delivering it into the ventricle. You are, based on, a, actually it's a fairly old study now, um, there should be better distribution throughout the neuroaxis if you do it through the ventricle versus lumbar. Um, but it does require a procedure. There's some risks involved with any procedure. Um, they have a bleed, if the patients are anticoagulated, anti we worry about bleeding. There's always kind of the underlying risk for infection. You can get leukoencephalopathy along the tract in the brain because sometimes you get a bit of a, a backflow of chemo. Um, but generally speaking, the complication rate's pretty low for patients with solid tumors. There are a number of different complications, including aseptic or chemical meningitis. Um, so we sometimes assume that it's aseptic or chemical. We still have to keep in mind that it could be infectious, because the, particularly if the patient's had a procedure. Um, and even if the patient has not had a recent procedure, like placement of the omaya, um, using non-sterile technique can certainly introduce an infectious substance right into the brain. Other complications, leukoencephalopathy, particularly with uh, radiation. So we have to be very careful about that if we're going to radiate somebody and give them methotrexate in particular. They can have problems with the spinal cord, myelopathy, seizure. Um, we talked about epidural or subdural delivery. You can still get myelosuppression, even though it's intrathecal. Um, we talked about bulky disease and the VP shunt. So most common drugs used for intrathecal administration are methotrexate. That's the most common overall. Um, it's, it, we know it's active against hematologic malignancies. It seems to have some activity in breast cancer, although certainly to a lesser degree. Um, and it seems to be minimally effective for other tumor types. It is systemically metabolized. As I mentioned, it's, you can't metabolize it in the CSF. So you can still get myelosuppression. Let me take a little break here. I've got to drink a coffee, I guess. It's doing something here. My screen's kind of flashing. 
Which push what? There's a dark button on the pointer. My screen does. This one doesn't. This is. <coughs> excuse me. This is what it did before, and it just kind of came back. So I was kind of hopeful. Yeah. That's what I had. You know. Now you're doing all sorts of things. Detroit dancing just to wake up. It did what it did before, and then it just kind of didn't come back this time. Okay. Oops. I'm going to reach oh, no. for you. Sorry. Okay, so let's go into this view. Let's exit. Make sure she got it first here. Yeah, that's a good plan. All right, here we are. Okay, moving right along. And how are we doing on? We're doing okay. All right. So uh, I think we've finished this slide. We're moving on. Same risk factors as systemic therapy. Come on. There we go. Complications, aseptic meningitis, leukoencephalopathy that can be acute or delayed, and you can get a transverse myelopathy. Cytarabine is one of the other three that's commonly used for intrathecal. You can use conventional or liposomal forms. Typically, the liposomal form is preferred for solid tumor um, simply because the concentration is up to 28 days versus one to two days of elimination, and you don't have to give the chemo quite as often. Um, the challenge is it's associated, it has a higher risk of aseptic meningitis, and for that reason, and it's given with steroids. Less common neurological complications. We don't see a lot, um, but you can get an encephalopathy like you can with anything else, seizures, myelopathy, or something called a pseudotumor cerebri syndrome. Thiotipa is the third one. That's definitely less commonly used. Um, it has the shortest half-life. It's fully cleared in four hours, but it has minimal CNS toxicity. Um, so there are times when that's used in lieu of being able to use anything else, particularly if methotrexate uh, has failed or you have an uh, leukoencephalopathy or if you need to give radiation and you're afraid, about the, afraid of the combined effects. So these, this is some of the regimens that we use for these in particular. 
So none of these agents has shown a clear survival advantage, and the combination doesn't seem to be better than single agent. Um, but there are some reports that kind of favor cytarabine over methotrexate, um, longer time to neurological progression, um, and then there was a sub-analysis that showed that quality was better, quality of life markers were better in treatment with, with um, cytarabine versus methotrexate. But the interesting thing is these are none of these three agents are things that you would choose systemically to treat patients with a solid tumor. So um, the fact that we're using them in this setting in and of itself suggests that maybe the, you wouldn't expect a particularly good outcome. Um, Good efficacy, I should say. Here's an example of using uh, liposomal cytarabine in a patient. Uh, first, or a couple of patients they looked at. One, the response duration reached 79 days, which is not great, but that doesn't mean that that was survival. That means response rate, so presumably survival might be a little better than it otherwise would be. Um, but there's another one here. The response was achieved after first two weeks and lasted 18 months. So this is kind of typical for what we see for something like cytarabine, these kind of case reports that suggest a response, but it's not an, uh, an extremely impressive response, and it's never something that's kind of a, a collection of data that we can use to come up with anything statistically meaningful. These are some of the other agents that have been used intrathecally but are not routinely used intrathecally, including the last two, which are more recently used. Um, and those two do have some interest where the others have kind of fallen by the wayside over time. And I won't talk about rituximab because we're not talking about liquid tumors today, but there are definitely um, data out there to suggest that intrathecal herceptin, herceptin is useful. Um, this was a phase one study that was really a feasibility study to determine whether it was tolerable. Um, they did not deserve any or did not observe any dose limiting toxicities of intrathecal trastuzumab, but the doses that they used, even up to the highest dose of 150 milligrams. Um, and they weren't looking necessarily at survival in this study, but they did have three patients with a complete response, seven patients with stable disease, and then another four had progressive disease. This is a, there is an ongoing study, and we'll, t we'll touch on that in a moment as well. But this is an example, uh, kind of a good example of what sometimes can happen in these settings. So this patient was treated with intrathecal Herceptin, and she uh, had stable disease for 46 months after being diagnosed with leptomeningeal disease. So that's a rather impressive progression. I'm sorry, progression-free survival. Um, but she eventually developed this spinal cord metastasis that you can see here, this right area. And so this is a really good example of the limitations of intrathecal because intrathecal chemo is not going to get in to treat that lesion in the spinal cord. It may be effectively treating the leptomeningeal deposits, but that's out of touch. And also, if you give, intra if you give Herceptin through the bloodstream, that's not going to get good penetration in there. So that drug was working for her until she developed something in, that, in a region that was kind of unreachable, and that's what led to her, her death. Systemic chemotherapy is another option. You avoid the risks associated with OMIA placement or doing an LP. You don't have to worry about CSF flow dynamics. So I keep referencing that. If a patient has bulky disease somewhere in that um, system, whether it's in the brain or the spinal cord, delivering chemotherapy into that area, you can end up with um, loculated regions where you get uh, toxicity because of the chemo sitting there and pooling. So we don't have to worry about that with CSF, or I'm sorry, with intravenous. And the other thing is, um, you can reach those bulky plaques a little bit better, presumably, anyway. So cytotoxic, we know we can get cytotoxic concentrations in the CSF from methotrexate. 
And we've talked about cytarabine and thiotipa, but what about the other drugs, the things that we would maybe think about using in the setting of disease? Capecitabine, there are some documented responses systemically. Temozolomide, there were case reports that were suggestive, and I'm not talking about brain tumors. I'm talking about others, including uh, melanoma. But a phase two study was stopped early due to poor accrual, and their initial data were not particularly impressive. Um, pemetrexate has some advantages over methotrexate in terms of how we administer it and how it's tolerated. The problem is we don't think that it has good CNS penetration, and there are studies underway now looking at it for intrathecal use. And then Avastin may or may not be of benefit in terms of tumor. I mean, it's not a cytotoxic agent, so to speak, but there could be a clinical benefit. One of the challenges, though, is it tends to make things not light up on the scan, so you can't always measure um, progress. So talking about the three kind of most common for breast cancer, the kind of generic recommendation is consider agents that you would be that you would use anyway for CNS metastases, which means you would presume they get into the uh, that they cross the blood-brain barrier. There's no there are no systematic studies to uh, to kind of determine what drug is uh, superior. There are occasional responses noted to hormonal agents, but most of the patients who present with leptomeningeal disease are at a point where um, that's they're they're resistant. Melanoma, there are some responses to BRAF inhibitors that have been documented, and possibly immunotherapy. That remains to be seen. So a little bit more information about lung cancer. So for EGFR-positive tumors, um, one thing that's, kind of, that's been determined is that erlotinib may reach a higher CSF concentration than gefitinib. Um, but even with erlotinib, we have to think about the dosage and, and whether or not we need to change the way that we give it in order to get it across the blood-brain barrier and how compromised is the blood-brain barrier. Osimertinib has shown some good results in a phase one study. It remains to be seen whether that holds true, but this was in patients who had progressed on prior EGFR TKI therapy. Out-positive tumors, I'll show you a couple of case reports on that. There are reported responses. There is one paper that showed um, a response in a small number of patients with small cell to high-dose etoposide, and then immunotherapy is also a question in the setting of lung cancer, and we'll talk about that in a moment as well. So this is an example with seritinib. Um, you can see in the pictures here the change over time. So this is how they presented. Okay, you see this disease here. And then in, so they presented in March. In May they had less. And then in September, I don't know that it really improved much in September, but it was still was better than it was at presentation. That's, so that's several months of kind of stable disease at minimum. And this is electinib. They got a much better radiographic response in this setting, so all of this white stuff here has gone away. Okay. And this is greater than 15 months. And then just a couple of other ones, because all I've been doing is kind of focusing on the top three. Um, but this is an example of a patient with pancreatic cancer. And, you know, it's notable that the patient had an exceptional response to begin with, with to their initial systemic therapy. Um, but 29 months in, um, developed leptomeningeal disease and brain metastases, was treated aggressively with capecitabine and irinotecan, as well as intrathecal topotecan, which is one of those that I said really isn't often used anymore. Uh, and then bevacizumab, and he did well in that for 36 weeks and then ended up dying of sepsis. So that's a pretty marked response. And this is a case of gastric cancer where the patient got intrathecal methotrexate along with oral temozolomide and radiation therapy and had a progression-free survival of 11 months. 
So there are cases where patients do better. And again, kind of coming back to what I alluded to in the beginning, why do some of these patients do better than others? And that's kind of what needs to be fleshed out in order to determine how to treat these patients better or more specifically. So these are some of the studies that are ongoing. Um, so we have the first one, the intrathecal pemetrexid, which I uh, spoke about a moment ago, and that's specifically for non-small cell lung cancer. It's a phase one pilot study. We have another phase one uh, looking at uh, proton therapy. So I mentioned that we don't do craniospinal irradiation because of the toxicity associated with it, but the question is, could proton therapy be used, in which case we wouldn't, say, hit the vertebra so hard and cause so much myelosuppression? So that's from MSK, that's a phase one. There's a phase two study looking at pembrolizumab in patients. Um, so we have a few of them here in a row that are looking at immunotherapy. So we have pembrolizumab, which is not specific to any particular disease type, it's solid tumors. And then we have ipilimumab and nivolumab for melanoma. And then we also have uh, nivolumab for, um, let's see, what's, that's not the one that I, I think there's one on the next page. So in any case, these two here are both looking at um, checkpoint inhibitors, uh, one specific to melanoma, one not. And then we have intravenous and intrathecal nivolumab for patients with lepto. That is nonspecific. And then we have at the bottom one of the ones that I was kind of talking about before that we're looking at intrathecal Herceptin. This is kind of the ongoing study that's been going for a while at Northwestern, and they have some preliminary data that look very promising, which is in line with what we've kind of seen in these case reports in the literature. The top one here uh, is actually an, a radioimmunotherapy um, approach that's out of MSK. So that's using iodine-131 um, tagged to a monoclonal antibody. And that is also not specific to a particular tumor type, other than it being a solid tumor. Um, and then we have out-positive non-small cell lung cancer looking at seritinib. We've already seen that there is some um, uh, efficacy, at least in a case report setting, but we need to determine that on a larger scale. And then there are a few studies in addition to this that I can't that I know about, but I, I don't want to give a lot of detail about looking at T cell approaches to treatment. So self T cell therapy is of interest at this point. Um, this one in particular, they're looking at adoptive T cell transfer with or without dendritic cell immunization. Then the last two here, and this really kind of comprises the majority of what's out there on clinicaltrials.gov, so there's not a lot going on. But the last two are interesting because we're, we're talking about liposomal cytarabine, uh, phase three study, um, and then we're looking at uh, methotrexate. So we still haven't answered, I mean, as far as we're trying to come clearly, we still haven't answered the question of whether those work or not. So the attempt in this setting, I think, is just to kind of determine whether or not we can even, you know, really recommend them other than recommending them for lack of something better to recommend and because of some case reports of responses. So just parting thoughts, and we're improving our diagnostics. We're getting better at finding it, um, but we have had minimal progress in treating it. Uh, so we have a lot to learn, a long way to go. The barriers are the small numbers, the limitations in trial design, um, the variation in, approach, in approaches, and then the selection bias. It's, it's, many of these patients are at a point where it's time to consider hospice. And so they're not going to end up in a randomized controlled trial. And we already have small numbers to begin with. So there, but there's increase, there seems to be increased interest. That's kind of the impression that I have. Um, so along with that comes kind of the hope that maybe these newer approaches will help us to learn a little bit better about how this happens, a little bit more about how it happens so that we can better treat it. And that is it other than references. Thoughts, questions? Thank you.
question. I think we have a few minutes for questions. Paula, I was just wondering, um, you know, in my work, obviously, I get consulted a lot from patients who get left a meningeal spread of tumor. And um, I often have to help them with decision making. And obviously, your consultations are always helpful on that. Um, however, recently, a patient was in, in the intensive care unit and had um, left a meningeal disease and hydrocephalus. And his... Um, and we were trying to think about, you know, what to do for him. And, and I'm wondering more about the VP shunts because it seemed as though the neurosurgeons thought about it, but they were very worried about seeding into the abdomen. And um, I'm just wondering what is the patient selection criteria that you might think about for a VP shunt? So there are kind of two parts to that question. One is kind of what would I think, and then the other is how do the, how do the surgeons feel about it, yes. right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and so from my perspective, the main consideration that I have is symptomatic relief. So would this provide symptomatic relief without significantly impairing their quality of life by requiring them to go through a procedure, and that kind of uh, dovetails with their prognosis. Somebody who's really kind of looking like it's extremely limited, I wouldn't think about it. But somebody who may have a short window, and during that window they could potentially feel better, and they could get through a procedure, to me that's somebody where it's worth at least talking about. Um, I would say broadly, not specific to our neurosurgery community, but broadly within the neurosurgery community, um, my impression is that it's not the favorite um, procedure to do, um, and, it, and it's valid for them to say that the prognosis is poor. Um, so I think that that's not unreasonable. I don't know how much seeding into the abdomen matters if you're doing it for palliative reasons. So if we're looking at somebody who may have a good opportunity to have a little bit longer survival, maybe they're in one of these groups that looks a little bit better, that's very different than somebody where we think survival is limited, in which case it probably isn't material. But that's, you know, ultimately the surgeon has to decide if they're comfortable doing it. Laura might have some perspective, too. Well, I would just add that um, I think the perception isn't so much, in my experience, that it's um, concerned about abdominal seating but rather the decision is between palliative comfort versus active treatment, whereas most patients who are going to have active treatment are either going to need whole brain and usually some sort of intrafecal treatment, and intrafecal treatment is basically obviated by the BP shunt. So even with the programmable shunts and the ones with the valves, it's not really safe to give intrafecal chemo, even with the valve, because it's so unreliable. Um, and so those patients would benefit from probably on a myoplasmid placement with, you know, you know, every day going and releasing pressure and doing something along those lines, or, or a short-term EPD to get through um, whole brain radiation. We had a case recently where we actually had an EPD, the person got the whole brain, had a great response, and if they need to chemo later, they still aren't able to get that. So, so it's really that concern, so that's why it's not, it's not the procedure as much as where the chemo is going to end up. And you certainly can't. <clears throat> so EBD, they were able to take the patient from the intensive care unit with EBD or the neuro special care unit with EBD. Yeah, it's, it's a huge rigmarole. Yeah, but if you have a responsive, yeah. you know, if you have a patient that should respond quickly to radiation, you can do those kinds of things. And it's, yeah. it's not easy, but it's got to be right. very patient specific. Yeah. Because most folks aren't going to have a... 
Yeah, opinions vary on the safety of chemotherapy with a VP shunt. There are definitely studies that say it is safe with an on-off valve, but there are definitely a lot of people who in practice disagree with that or feel uncomfortable with that. That's kind of the, yeah. Yes, Constantine. So in some cases we see that they are effective, but we know that that's a case, there's a reason that's a case study in the literature and not just broadly understood to be the case. Um, there is a difference between blood-brain barrier penetration and adequate concentration within the CSF, and I think that can be, I think that can vary quite a bit. So we may be getting the drugs into the system, but how much is actually, um, Two things, how much is act, what the concentration is within the CSF itself is one thing, and are those cells adherent in some cases versus free-floating in some cases? So I think that some of these things, that's why I say I think we need to flesh out a little bit better the mechanisms of how this happens, kind of what I alluded to in the beginning, um, before we can understand why some things work and why they don't. There's a difference. So exactly as you said, why did it work in this case and why does it otherwise not work? And I don't have a definitive answer yet. Yes. Basic question: Is there any literature that points to this site being uh, a site for dormant uh, breast cancer cell? I don't know of anything in the literature that has proven that to be the case, but I don't know why we wouldn't assume that that's the case. I think it's very, very plausible, and not unlike metastases that are within the parenchyma, because they really are metastases. They're just in a kind of a difficult, a more difficult compartment in a sense. Thank you. Thank you.